I can do things that wear it without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of and fun. anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Paul. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail for another unparalleled adventure of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and floating the river with me as always is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer for Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Which way's the river taking us today, Mel? Well, Freddie, we've got another one of our worldwide cruises today as we sail north, south, east, and west with uh, architect, master planner, and designer, and my neighbor, uh, Jeff Dameron. Uh, Jeff's expansive design journey as an independent architect and then with uh, the world's largest uh, ENA architecture engineering firm, AECOM, has brought him uh, from California, Hawaii, to Spain, Australia, Malaysia, and Japan. Uh, in all his master plans and designs probably span beyond the 10 million square feet limit of family fun, luxury escapes, and destination delights the world over, including uh, some pretty fun projects for Tokyo Disney Sea, Lotte World in Seoul, and Park Warner in Madrid. And not only does Jeff share a lot of artful and engaging destinations, we also share a birthday. <laughs> Go uh, figure. There's something I liked about you guys. <laughs> Alrighty, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Hey, Mel, one of the first things I think I heard about you uh, when... We were at when I was at Children's Hunger Fund, and we were considering hiring you to design Poverty Encounter, the attraction that became Poverty Encounter. Uh, we what I heard was that you had a hand in developing the Disney's Grand Californian Hotel, and um, how that was the very first in berm lodging experience where you could be sleeping inside of a theme park and all of that. And uh, I. I I'm always fascinated by, by the process that it must have taken to integrate so much into such a little tiny space. We got, we're talking about a hotel, the pools, the restaurants, the entertainment, there's a movie theater, there's a ESPN. So there's all this stuff all mashed together. And then you add the chaos and uh, gigantic draw of a theme park to that same mix. I, I'm just fascinated by what you had, what you and that team had to do to make that happen. Uh, you know, it's funny because, yeah, the normal architecture and development world starts at something called schematic design, um, and it goes through design development, construction documents, and so on and so forth. Um, but really, so much of the the heavy lifting, the foundation, the the pixie dust, the special sauce, or whatever you want to for for our industry, the the experience design development industry, it really is happens before that that schematic phase ever. You know, in terms of what I think of as pre production, you know, all the strategy, yeah. the the feasibility, the the visioning, the the pre concept, the you know the the preliminary concept, the final concept design, you know, all the testing and adjusting. 
that blue sky phase, uh, you know, we, we have a unique process we call the story circles to really walk through the fundamentals of character setting and plot. But yeah, you know, specifically, um, you know, when it comes to designing a, something at the scale of an urban mixed use thing that's supposed to be the central gathering place for, uh, you know, a, a region that has multiples of millions of, of locals <laughs> uh, as well as millions of visitors, um, you know, you can't imagine. I mean, we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, is this thing based on surface parking? Is it subterranean parking? Is it parking structure? I mean, because you can't even think of land in terms of filling land the same way that Disney traditionally had thought about land planning and, and, you know, how many, uh, units per acre, whether it's parking units or guests per acre or design days, you, you really have to think vertically. You have to think yeah. what's the residual land value, like what's the appropriate, uh, parking solution for this phase of work, uh, for this, uh, next five, 10, 15 years, what's an appropriate phase to think about a future state where surface asphalt lots are automatically assumed to be land banks. That's a lot yeah, of the work yeah. that's being done with, uh, Disneyland Forward right now in terms of finally getting to flesh out all those surface lots. Uh, and again, as you can imagine, just dealing with all the different stakeholders and operate from theme park guys that are, would be freaked out at the idea of hotel guests hanging their uh, <laughs> underwear or bathing suits or towels on the hotel balconies that, that are part of the show, you know, in the berm or in, the, in our version of Yosemite National Park. And trying to negotiate all those operational concerns and uh you know where you know where the lines are in terms of the different you know fiefdoms and yes. kingdoms uh, <laughs> with management and power structures and ironically as i was looking at some of that stuff for disney's grand Californian hotel jeff was doing the same thing uh in uh, tokyo disney sees it actually my favorite hotel in the world the best hotel night ever experience was uh for my birthday one year um at the, the miracosta so, uh, yeah, that's so quite awesome. a, quite an accomplishment. Yeah. Part. Well, speaking of Jeff, I mean, he's got a lot of experience doing this. And if you take a top down look at any of these, uh, wonderful human magnets that we, we love these theme parks and then the resorts that surround them and all of that, you, you really get a sense of the mastery that has to happen in order to make something like this really workable, really walkable, really human friendly, and at the same time as efficient and um, it, helpful <laughs> towards it, the enjoyment as possible. Well, our guest today is Jeff Dameron. Jeff is a 30-year veteran plus 30 plus year veteran he 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 wouldn't probably like me to say how many years but he's been there for been doing uh themed entertainment and destination design for so many years providing his expertise as an architect designer and master planner in theme park projects hotels resorts casinos and many many more mixed use projects where people can live work and play most recently he came on board as one of mel's storylanders as a senior vp of architecture master planning and design that's quite a title uh, and now i want to introduce to you our themed attraction podcast interview with our friend jeff dameron well, Jeff Dameron, it's great to have you here on the Themed Attraction Podcast. Uh, it's actually been a long time coming, hasn't it, Mel? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, Jeff and I have been uh, friends, collaborators, and neighbors for several decades, but uh, I am so stoked not just to have him on the 
podcast, but to welcome him uh, on board as our new vice president of uh, master planning and architecture at Storyland Studios. So welcome aboard, Mady. Thank you very much. Uh, it has been a long time. You know, I'm almost ashamed to look back how long we've known each other and you know, we're not going to mention age on this podcast. No, no, no. I'll probably give it away anyway shortly. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's been a minute to say. Yeah, yes. I remember times when we would be working on projects, Mel, and you would say, "Well, I, I need to ask my neighbor because <laughs> 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 you guys don't live too far from each other." Yep. You'd ask uh, Jeff for uh, thoughts and ideas. I love that. Well, Jeff, uh, man, you've got uh, an incredible story in terms of some of your roots and. Um, kind of uh, the collaborators you've had, um, you know, I don't even know where to where to start, where to begin. Um, but I mean, in terms of your first brushes with the uh, with the industry, uh, you know, how, which which without listing decades or years, I guess that might be well, is there, gonna, I, well, names. I, 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 uh, I'll start with, um, you know, I was in high school and I got my first job as an you know working with an architectural firm. And I mostly did it in part because my brother, Greg Dameron, and my cousin, David Dameron, who were both in the industry. Legends, um, I, I should Legends. Add. And, you know, they were great. I mean, they set the bar really high from an early age and much higher than I feel like I've ever achieved. But I've had, you know, some fun working with them. And, but uh, anyway, I, stay, I, I ended up working with that firm for almost 20 years. And in the process, um, early on, um, we had a client. His name was Ray Watson. Ray was the president of Newport Development Company and also a uh, member of the board of directors at Disney. Ray was also one of my adjunct professors was in master really? planning school, like, believe it or not. Now, he <laughs> was a great guy, was he not? He Ray was awesome. Was very fantastic. humble. Amazing. Very, very humble guy. I used to walk the Ray Watson Bridge between UC <laughs> Irvine right? and UC Irvine Town oh, Center every okay. day, twice a day. <laughs> so, so Ray, uh, I was actually doing... Ray's house as a draftsman for David, who was David Plages, who was the architect. And uh, Ray came to us one day and said, listen, I need to start doing some planning for Disney and I want to do some really big stuff. So he had us had us master planning for him and St. Joe Company, I think it was, or St. Joe. Yep. And uh, it was the Disney Vacation Village. And we ended up doing several dozen different planned layouts for him, different sites. And he just took them all so that was well, by, by the way historical note ray watson president of the irvine company the largest yes. master plan development probably in in the first world at the time uh yeah. you know 150,000 acres something like that went on to be president or chairman of uh the walt disney company uh really was part that's of the right. team that uh, brought michael eisner that's right over so kind of a kind of a big deal it, he, it, there's a book out that um tells the story of when all that happened it was called i think it's called uh, raiding the magic kingdom or something yeah, like that yeah. and um boy i was right there with ray when all this was going down i was just a draftsman but i was in the conference rooms a lot and listening in a little bit of what's going on it was to see the book come out after the fact was pretty interesting anyway. you know one of the things i loved about ray um is that he he loved the first community that he master planned and worked on which was east bluff yep. in irvine i think it's also where uh tom Morris actually grew up uh, in the same neighborhood, Probably. and Ray actually uh, stayed living in that same yes, neighborhood and never uh, never until, strayed. A lot of, a lot of these guys, house. Yep. yeah, that's right, that's cool, that's right, yeah. So working there, working with Greg, as you know, Greg was an illustrator and a designer, and Greg was working for Rich Battaglia in about 
you know, middle of the eighties, late eighties. And, um, he asked me to come over and work with him. And, uh, uh, that was my first foray into entertainment design. And I ended up working with him on the Lotte world project in, uh, in Jamsol, Seoul, Korea. And, um, you know, I, I got to saddle up next to Howard Bromet, who is a legendary uh, Imagineer, um, has its own window in Disneyland, Florida. And um, he was a classic, classic artist, Renaissance kind of guy. He came out of the construction industry in the, at the, during the Depression and then uh, gravitated towards architecture drafting and architecture design. He eventually became a, an Imagineer in the early 60s and stayed there for a long time. Um, when I met him, he was probably 80 and wow. I, I knew him for the rest of his life. He lived a long time and he, he was a, he was just an amazing, amazing man, amazing person, very godly person, very, uh, you know, sent, you know, just a great guy all around. Um, it's and, so uh, important to have those mentors. Oh in yeah. I was lives, so lucky. Right? I, I was so lucky. In addition to Greg and David's, you know, especially Greg's mentorship, uh, I got to go to Korea for quite a while with Howard and uh, just him and I, and we spent some time, you know, doing the castle and amongst other things, the, the, the rest of Lotte World. Um, so that was, that was really special. And then um, after we finished that, um, I went back to Clage's office and worked as an architect and, and, and then, you know, wasn't, wasn't doing much more uh, than architecture per se, but we were doing a lot of golf. We were a design firm, so we did a lot of golf courses, golf course resorts, golf clubhouses. We did, you know, Sentosa Island Master Plan, Sentosa Island Country Club, <laughs> Singapore Island Country Club. Uh, just up and down the Asian seaboard, we were doing golf resorts and hotels up and down um, during the 90s. Um, and it was um, it was fun because I was young and I got to travel a lot. I spent, do you I play golf? I do play golf. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of fun to get to <laughs> yeah. uh, play oh, in gosh. that sandbox, so to speak. And that's yeah. the island that Universal Studio Singapore is on today. That's right. The entertainment acre. Yeah. So, yeah. As, a, as a golf designer, we got to work with some of the greatest companies in the world. We got to work with Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer and Gary Player and Greg Norman. And uh, the list just goes on. Payne Stewart. I mean, just wow. great guys we got to, to interact with and work with. Um, but yes, I was getting that at, you know, we had done some, our, our firm was hired by Greg, who was currently at the, at this time, it was the VP of design at master plan and design at universal studios in LA. And he hired us to do some studies with him and Bob Ward on, on city walk. So we did a number of city walks all over the country in Boston and Asia and Denver. We did some city walk work and just really studying what is city walk, what was city walk, what should it be. And so that was another foray into the entertainment industry. And then, then they hired us, um, Universal had us come in. We had a, a whole team of about 30 people came in. Um, uh, this is funny because Craig Hanna was there and this is right prior to him starting Thinkwell. And, uh, he was one of many, but, um, uh, we were designing the Universal Studios in Singapore. And it was a different site, and it had a, an arena next to it. And, um, but we did some planning for them, and, and it didn't quite materialize in anything. And, and then it went away, and you know, I came back and was doing architecture work and was actually doing um, a lot of work at Disneyland, a lot of the kind of, uh, as an architect, um, the construction documentation for renovation of their CapEx um, rides and attractions, restaurants and retail, 
all through Disneyland. So I kind of stayed in touch with them. And then they, they eventually hired me. They, they asked me to come on board and um, be one of the staff architects there at Imagineers to do the um, Hotel Miracosta in, in Tokyo, which oh, yeah. was, you know, a fantastic design project. You know, I think we spent, I think the company spent, not me, but the company spent probably seven years designing that park and hotel and maybe three years building it. You know, well, so. I mentioned to you, um, you know, I had a chance to spend a birthday night there, one of the uh-huh. best overnights in a theme park in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you were working on that while I was working on the Grand California. Isn't but, that uh, funny? <laughs> I bowed down to uh, the team on the Miracosa, you know, certainly had the better budget. But, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, probably one of the most immersive, uh, beautiful yeah multi-sensory aesthetic experiences it was it was really great because when i got there i got you know they actually showed me the uh the book the narrative book that everybody was responsible to read prior to putting first pen to paper and it was a book a a full book and i read the whole thing and it was god it was just so so great And, and um you know we had people on at at imagineers up there from italy we had these four women i remember who were painting full-size replicas, not replicas, but full-size facades of all the Trump oil that they were going to paint on the facade of the hotel. So they would paint these for a couple of weeks and they'd paint them white and they'd do them again. They'd paint them white, they'd do them again. And wow. just over and over, over, these four Italian women who were just fantastic. They spoke, a, didn't, none of them spoke a word of English. And <laughs> they would sit out in the back lot on outside and do their paintings and we'd see them at lunch and talk, try to talk to them. But <laughs> that's, <laughs> it was quite, quite interesting. That's amazing. It really um, is a beautiful resort, isn't it? It just, yeah. uh, uh, loaded with story and loaded with, um, just, just, and you, the, the artistry that, uh, got all pulled into that. It's, it just sounds amazing. Must, must yeah. get there soon. And I got to work with all of the main architects at Disneyland Imagineers all wanted a part of this project. So at some point they were all in and out of the project. Wingwood's course was there and Todd Lennon was there and Bell was there. You know, just the whole list of architects who worked on it um, was amazing. At what point did you come into it at that particular you know, project? I came into it. <laughs> <laughs> there were some shenanigans that went on that dismissed a previous team and, uh-huh. um, uh, they were in need of shoring that team up. So they asked me to come in and finish it. So I, I worked for about the last 14 months while I was here in the States. And then it moved off into Asia, in which case they gave me an offer to, to, to go with them or, um, Mel, you mentioned the, the Waldorf story and Dana point. I got a much bigger, better offer to design that hotel. So I, I moved over to uh, my wedding night hotel. So you designed my birthday hotel and my wedding night hotel. <laughs> so Thanks, man. It, it was, that was, a, it is a great hotel. And um, it's got a beautiful view of the coast. And um, yeah, the owners gave me a room as well now on, on my honeymoon. So it was wedding night, actually. So that was really, sweet. really special. Yeah. Um, and it's still nice. I still go down there regularly and play golf at the resort. So. Well, it's nice. You and I uh, live on one end of Crown Valley Parkway, and the hotel sits right on the opposite end of Crown Valley. That's right. That's right. We can almost ride a skateboard down the hill. (laughs) It'd be a long ride, but (laughs) almost. (laughs) But you're right. It's almost downhill the whole way. Um, Anyway, after that, I uh, uh, after that hotel was built, we at my office, which was AECOM, um, 
uh, we had been doing a lot of the work at Disneyland and did, doing a lot of the attractions and um, probably on a regular basis. We had a good staff, maybe a dozen architects and then as many engineers who helped us in-house that, that we did a lot of the attraction upgrades and remodels and new stuff. And, and then we bid on and, and won about one-third of the California Adventure Park. So we did, we documented as architects um, uh, about, a, you know, the Paradise Pier area of, of California Adventure. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And then just as that project was ending for us, we won the project to become the architect, the lead design architect for the Warner Brothers project in Madrid. So I, I was just fortunate that every time I had a project come to an end, another one started up and I, I didn't really seek it out or anything. It just kind of, um, just kind of evolved in, in the whole time. I'm, you know, looking for people to mentor with and learn from. And, and undoubtedly I, I go back to Greg, my brother constantly, because, um, if anybody knows him, I'm sure a lot of people do. He is, he is very good at what he does. Very, very good. And, um, uh, anyway, I got a chance to be the architect and, and some do some of the design. We hired my cousin David uh, to work with me for a while, <clears throat> which was fun. And then, uh, I, by project, the way, I've always thought that that Madrid Park, uh, especially for U.S. Uh, based fans and designers, is one of the most underrecognized. Uh, I would uh, agree with some you of know. the design. Yeah, I mean, de- absolutely. You know, at least universal level and beyond. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the Gotham area there. I mean, just uh, I was going to say, David yeah. and I worked on the Gotham area quite a bit, and it's uh, it came out really well. <laughs> Yeah, love love the L train street show. Yep, uh, yep. just really brings that that to life in a way that uh, Galaxy's you know, Edge. I think I still have some original thumbnails around here somewhere. Um, <clears throat> anyway, going beyond that, staying in entertainment design, I, I acted as architect of record on many projects in between that. Uh, a lot of hotels, a lot of things, but um, I I went on to do a, a, a golf community and and as there recession of 2007 started uh our golf stuff slowed where i was so i um i was actually working for a developer whereas president of development so that project slowed and then i immediately got a call to work on the warner brothers abu dhabi project from atkins so i went to work for them worked for about a year on that project and it was canceled um due to the you know economic downturn so um, you know, like everybody else, I was looking for work at the time and, and fortunate enough that a, uh, a REIT who happened to foreclose on a bunch of hotels called me and asked me to just go to work for them. So for the next three or four years, I did nothing but hotel design with them, just upgrading all their hotels. So I felt like I was still in entertainment because hospitality is such a big part of entertainment. Well, especially when that's uh, in in Hawaii. These aren't like yeah. Des Moines, Iowa That's convention right. hotels, right? <laughs> it was it was a rough recession having to fly to Hawaii every other week. <laughs> yeah, that <right>. was rough. <laughs> but uh, but it was it was it was good experience and I, I enjoyed it. And then um, um, about the time that was ending I got a call from AE called again asking to come back and they were bidding on the Warner Brothers project in Abu Dhabi. And, um, and the client actually called me at home and asked to meet my brother and I, Greg and I, out in Iapa one year, just prior to this, and just kind of talked about the project. They were getting ready to start it back up, and we wanted to see, you know, if we could help. So um, 
just oddly enough, when they went to bid, uh, they bid for the lead design consultant was Atkins and AECOM. So Atkins was the firm I started the project with. AECOM was the firm I was going to bid. And Atkins put my brother on their team. So the client called me before they selected and said, look, we're going to get one of you guys on this project. <laughs> so AECOM won that. And, um, and we ended up, you know, I ended up going to work for them. And, 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 and Greg's probably up, still pissed at you, right? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that bothered him. He's, he's always been plenty busy. He's usually got so much work. The yeah. guy's just, just, I don't know. I've never seen anybody work like him, but it's another story. Um, anyway, so I, I come back in when I had left AECOM, their division in, in entertainment design pretty much died. When I came back on board, we grew the thing right up and, and, um, <clears throat> we're working on, on as the lead design consultant for Warner brothers. And I, I had a big role in that as the architect and planner, of not just the park. I worked very closely with Thinkwell and Larry Wyatt's team on the, on the planning of attractions and locations. And that was Again, great experience, but I also brought a lot of knowledge to the table um, to implement that and work closely with the client, you know, on a regular basis um, on, on planning what they needed from the deliverable side uh, for that project. Because, you know, how many indoor theme parks do you get to work on in your life? I think there's only two, and I've been on both of them, both yeah. the world and, and Abu Dhabi. So, <clears throat> so unique knowledge was gained in both times. And... Um, um, and then as I'm segueing off of the Abu Dhabi project for my transition, the project to Dubai and I'm, I'm living in Dubai and the AECOM team is, is taking that over. I get a call asking me if I can attend an interview with Universal Studios and Mark Woodbury on the master plan for Beijing. So I set my alarm at 3 a.m. and <laughs> I get up and slap my face <laughs> and, uh, and interviewed and that was the first pass and they they decided to to hire us and we also brought my brother greg in and he and i spent the next i don't know i want to say the next month maybe in in orlando in in our office our aecom office that's close to downtown unbeknownst to anybody else inside of universal and we sat there and master planned the resort in beijing wow that's incredible and then that eventually grew to a documented master plan that AECOM produced and um, Greg had a big part of it. Um, I had a big part of it. And then um, we bid on, we designed city walk out of the gate. You know, we designed, we don't, we didn't decide the parks because the park was pretty much universal branded IP lands that they were sprinkling around, but the, the overall master plan, the hotel planning, all that we did. And then we got an opportunity as AECOM to bid on, become the lead design consultant for whatever for all of it so we've been on all of it and we won we won the first two hotels and we won three of the five lands in the park so we then took those and documented those and i took the hotels and i i personally did the hotels and um, planned them all the way through construction um covid got in the way there at the end so we actually didn't have to go there which was good and bad um but uh but yeah, it was it was uh, quite an experience. So after that, you know, that was just a few years ago, and uh, you know, without even thinking about it, I find myself still in and in with both feet in a big way now with Storyland. So yeah, uh, bringing that whole 
history right into the Storyland offices and planning, master plan, architecture, and um, and looking forward to you know continuing this this uh, very unexpected career in architecture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, very so when you say unexpected. Yeah. What, what what was it about it that, you know, drew you first? You say you were unexpected. Let's go back to well, young Jeff Dameron and that head and heart. You know, in, I was when did you first pick up a pencil? <laughs> I was in, in high school and I, uh, I was a, I was a freshman in high school. This was between eighth and ninth grade. And I, and I wanted to do a project that was at the Orange County Fair. And I, I did a project and I submitted it and then they came my teacher came back and said no it's only for seniors and i said yeah but i already did all the work and he said, so he made an argument for me got me in put my name in there and i won the gold the blue medal so wow. I'm like, hey, this is cool so this i'll just keep doing this so i just kept in drafting classes i actually went to uh i would go to fleur which you know fleur corporation now here in orange county and on the weekends on saturday mornings and wednesday nights i'd go there and i would trace their plumbing plans to learn how to draft. Wow. And, and they paid me for it. (laughs) Uh So I did these little nuts and bolts and stuff. And then I just kept doing architectural drafting. And then one day I just decided that's, you know, it was summertime and I walked into David Clage's office between my sophomore and junior year and said, Hey, you know, can I have a job? And I must say that it might've helped that Greg called him and said, I was coming by because he did. (laughs) (laughs) So Greg, Craig also got me that job. <laughs> Always well, great uh, to we have should mention Dave Clay just kind of, um, kind of again another to me underrecognized oh. architect. I mean, when you, I mean, one of William Pereira, the guy yeah. master plan Irvine, one of his proteges, and Petronas Towers, Kuala Lumpur, yeah. Uh, yeah. Burj Dubai. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah we worked on them all. Pretty yeah. influential uh, guy. Yeah, I, I was very fortunate to to stay with them, and they they were. They were very good to me, you know. They gave me an, actually gave me an art, uh, a scholarship to go to architecture school, and um, you know, I, I never finished. I actually between I had so much work experience that between semesters, I came home one summer and took my exam and and passed. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to go back to school now. I've got my license." <laughs> so I just kept working. So. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit storylandstudios.com or call now, 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally.
Well, um, Jeff, one of the things I'd love to get your take on is, you know, a lot of uh, times, you know, when we would introduce, whether it's Imagineering or Storyland Studios, we, we'd, we'd highlight the fact that, hey, uh, unlike how most people think that uh, projects of this scale happen, it's not typically, you know, like a star architect or one architect, one man's right. vision, right? It's this wonderful motley crew, this wonderful oh, collective art form. Without a doubt. You know, and, and you, you know, when you start a project, it's usually a couple guys talking and then it grows into a couple guys, napkin sketches, and then it grows into a few more guys and then a few more guys. And then you've got some story guys coming in and then you've got right in attraction people, creatives who are saying, what ifs, you know, what if we do this? What if we do that? Can we do this? And then when you start the realization of that, which is where my real strong point starts is implementing some of these crazy ideas and documenting them for construction and then seeing to it that they get built in the way that the uh, creatives wanted it's as close as we can with budget in mind and you know as much thematic ability we can put into them um, working with disney was a huge asset because i got right. to see the good only you know the bar was set real high with disney so when i would go off to warner brothers or go off to another i I still try to achieve that bar. I mean, to talk about the number of people, Mel, at one time on those two hotels we were doing at, at Universal, AECOM, just for those two hotels, I'm sorry, for the two hotels and the three lands, we had 350 people working on that project just wow. in our office. Wow. Between six, six office offices globally, we had 350, 52 people working on that project. So when you talk about why it takes a village to to build something that that's why the, the, the technology that comes into these attractions that uh maybe aren't so noticeable to the general public but is something that is purposefully planned for example when when you go into an, an, an e-ticket attraction that's that's really thrilling you might go through an outdoor queue and then you come into the pre-show and you're indoors you know, a lot of people get a little bit nervous if they haven't been on these rides and attractions. And if it's warm in there, yeah, they get yeah. sick. So we always temper the air down a little bit to keep people as comfortable as they can. And these are subtleties that get realized as you start implementing rides and attractions for the guests. You know, it's always about the guest experience. So, you know, the noise, the noise level of where they're at, if the queue's too loud, you want to make sure you've got plenty of the acoustic, you know, detailing in there to, to soften and, and cater and target the, the ear for music or sounds you want to hear um, all the way through the queue and into the ride attraction. So, um, you know, whether it's pyrotechnics or wind or acoustics or, you know, your typical structural mechanical plumbing, all that stuff, you know, you want to make sure that that's all designed in a way that if ever needs service is outside of the purview of the guest. Right. So, um, Bad parks won't do that. Good parks like do Disney that. and Warner Brothers take extra care. Um, yeah. uh, so um, I got to, and I've, you know, <clears throat> I've got to work with some really great people. I'm so blessed in that way. I mean, the Thinkwell group, they were great. Uh, Mel, Storyland, you guys are, um, you know, great. And I'm, I'm really uh, fortunate to have landed again in another place that's, I'm going to get to sponge off of so much creativity. So um, again, I'm, Looking forward to it. And. <laughs> well, love your uh, your perspective. Um, 
Jeff, you know, it, it, management would brag, you know, that, hey, 140 different, you know, not to mention the headcount, but just 140 different disciplines of which architecture was only one of them. That mm-hmm. statement really underplays right. the role, though, that uh, architecture quite often has, both in the history of the art form, you know, where you had guys like Claude Coates and um, some of the original Imagineers that really were forced into animation because of the the Great Depression and some other things. But, uh, you know, Ken Anderson, I mean, you know, these these original Imagineering, uh, you know, art directors really wouldn't have been able to do what they did without that architectural background. But even today, with the, the amount of the heavy lifting in terms of, like you mentioned, documentation of all the different disciplines that really ultimately does come under the purview of that, that architect of record. You know, it's funny you say that because um, <clears throat> the guys I originally met at, at the Imagineers, they were all architects. I don't care what discipline they were in. Originally, they happened to be architects. And back in the day, we didn't have project managers to manage everything. The architects were responsible for it. So even to this day, um, Disney requires that their projects be managed by an architect first. Uh-huh. So when they outsource projects, they go architect first, everybody else comes in below them. And so they still have that kind of uh, rooted experience. So <clears throat> the fact that we get a bonus in having project managers take some of the heat away from architects and we get to play in design world more is great for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> What are your, uh, what are the, you know, of the different disciplines that you've had to play conductor towards <laughs> uh, any, any, uh, you know, favorites, least favorites, frustrating, you know, collaborations. or oh, something. As a matter of fact, it was just the opposite. Each time and still to this day, if I get the opportunity to collaborate with anybody on any any form of discipline, whether it's a, a flume manufacturer or a roller coaster manufacturer or a retailer with a, a very protected IP or a restaurant tour with a five-class, five-star chef, you know, yeah. It doesn't matter the discipline. I'm going to learn something, and I'm going to learn it to the best of my ability every single time I go in there. And I'm going to offer some historic knowledge, but I'm definitely there to learn on top of it. So um, it's uh, that's probably what makes this so entertaining to me, so to speak, is that um, technology changes all the time. Rides and attractions and how they're built and how they're delivered changes all the time. The, the fact that you can be fluid and dynamic and in that is uh, is helpful. And um, being there from, <laughs> from some of the pretty rotten stuff that happened in uh, the 80s and uh, the good, a lot of good happened in Lotte World. They had a very good budget and we were, uh, we set the bar high. Greg and Rich Pataglia both. Yeah, were, both the indoor and outdoor sections of that part. Oh my gosh. Just so beautiful. The castle, the castle, I worked very closely with Howard Brumman on and it was just fantastic to watch that guy. I mean, he could unfold a building with three or four drawings and you, it's like you're taking an x-ray through the thing. It was wow. just amazing. And, uh, uh, he really taught me a lot. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, there's, you know, even the techniques back then we used a lot of plaster, you know, and then, um, uh, polycarbonate started coming on, uh-huh. on, you know, and then, um, EFIS came into being and, you know, codes change. You know, when I started, the code book was a single book about this big, and now it's, you know, this big. 
it, it's just voluminous. You got to watch out for the architectural acronyms, the exterior insulated finished systems. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Conversation. As a matter of fact, it was a big deal during when we were doing the Warner Brothers project because as an indoor facility, you were only allowed 10% or so of your facade could be flammable. So with that much theming going on, how do you do that with lightweight material? Yeah. Uh, they just don't make it. So we were, we had to be very creative and I, I, I got to, I got very creative on how we solved that problem. And it was, uh, it, so far, as far as I can tell, it's worked. And I, nobody knows what I did, but it worked out well. <laughs> well, now the world knows, Jeff. Thanks for not, not quite. I, if I told you, it'd be kind of disgusting. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, when you're working in different environments, you know, you're working in the motel world, for example, it was a cold, very, very cold. So the outdoor park was had to be protected for that it wasn't used in the outdoor in the winter time but um but then when you go and you go to Abu Dhabi and you do a project and it's a completely opposite weather and how do you how do you build for that i mean who would have thought that you had to put a trough system underneath all of your mechanical systems and all their lines to collect the condensation to reuse that water for the facility I mean, yeah. you don't do that in every building but that yeah. one we were getting gallons and gallons of water just in condensation uh, so what do you do with it? So we made a, a pro out of it. We turned it into a, a functioning system that they use all the time forever. Yeah. So. So you, you mentioned technology changes, things uh, update. I've seen a lot of your drawings now and, uh, mm-hmm. and the hand-drawn uh, aspect of where, where you came from. I mean, I'm sure Howard Brummett never, uh, used a computer and there's uh, all <laughs> all of the CAD work that's done uh, <laughs> in-house now these days. Uh, talk to me a bit about how that sort of oh, evolution boy. comes and goes <clears throat> and the values well, that back, we learn. From- <clears throat> back when I started, we were still drawing on vellum. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we had moved on to Mylar drawings, which Mel might remember, but we had... Um, Graph and Mylar, and we had this, the first attempt at managing the layers of your documentation by using pin bar Mylar. So you'd have this pin bar at the top of your drawing board, and you'd draw one sheet had your floor plan on it, you'd put another full sheet of Mylar down, and that would have your, your lettering on it for your notes. The next one would have, you know, just the piping design. The next one would have just the electrical design, and we would move these around the same base plate base plan to to shoot drawings so and then um and then we went from that to i, I was trained on an eris which was pretty it was about the same time autocad started um and we were using eris and unfortunately everybody went to autocad so by the time <laughs> i got to the point where everybody's using autocad i was still doing hand-drawn design drawings yep so they just had me keep doing that because we didn't have photorealism renderings back then. We had to do them ourselves, right? So we just I just kept drawing and then <clears throat> gravitated to mostly design, but I had enough construction knowledge that helped our, our teams through construction. So um, anyway, it was <laughs> it went from that from CAD to AutoCAD to um, of course Revit, which it is today. Yeah, just 3D modeling. Where you're building the building virtually and building information modeling. Yeah, it's quite different, quite dynamic. 
a whole new set of experts came into the industry, you know, um, beyond IT, you know, just right. the, the Revit guys. And, and now it's almost uncommon if you don't hear about a BIM execution plan prior to starting your documentation. Everybody's got to negotiate it. Everybody's got to agree to it. And then that BIM execution plan is the basis for your, your building information modeling system. So it's uh, interesting that... You've, you imagine you've worked with a lot of different creative directors from guys that really have a solid production uh, kind of art direction background. You know, a Stuart Craig, right, coming off of the, the Harry Potter films and translating that into yeah. real world architecture that's not going to yeah. fall down after the shooting uh, and wraps. But um, I imagine there's other art directors that are a little more uh, literary or story or narrative focused. Do you have uh, kind of a, a preference in terms of having more bandwidth leeway on the design side one way or you the know, other? Or um, I love working with those guys. Um, I did get a chance to interact a little bit with John Hogg, who had a direct line to Stuart Craig on the on the Harry Potter um, projects, which we documented for for them in Beijing. And, um, um, and it's... Uh, it, it, I, I don't know. There's something special about those those guys who come out of the movie industry, <clears throat> who understand story. <clears throat> excuse me. Who um, build the story sets the way they used to. Um, yeah. For example, um, <clears throat> not many people notice, but when you're coming into the Harry Potter land, the road to Hog hogsmeade rises and it narrows just a little bit just like main street a little bit it rises up and it creates that force perspective and Stuart craig and john hogan and their team were elegant and beautiful at remembering how to do that properly and it's not done all the time anymore because um sight lines are certainly studied you know very carefully and building scale is studied very carefully vertically and um <clears throat> But there was something unique about those movie guys who know that force perspective like the back of their hand. Yeah. And I mean, they when they just draw their sketches, you can see it, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant, brilliant. Their, their napkin sketches ought to be works of art in a, in you know, in a frame. Well, I'm somewhere. sure in your career, though, Jeff, you've had to take uh, whether it's just interns or young designers straight out of architecture school <laughs> and kind of you know, almost de-architect them, you know, from the real world <laughs> rules of especially minimalist contemporary modern architecture into that realm of spatial yeah. storytelling and, and kind of filmic uh, production. <coughs> that's got to be, a, a, that's got to have been a repeated and continuing challenge over the course of your You know, it's funny you say that, Mel. I used to give um, senior crits at San Luis Obispo, which is an architectural school in the West Coast, which is pretty renowned architectural school. And one year we went up there and the students had worked a year on their, on their projects. And, and this time everything was an AutoCAD and we graded them, gave them, but then as a critique to the staff before we left, because we met with the staff after the students and we said, look, we need you to teach your students how to draw, put the computer down and start drawing again, because until they can get their hand, eye, mind working together, um, you know, going straight into CAD is going to limit them. It's going to limit them on, on how they build things. Now, certainly there's parametric architecture now that is endless in terms of forms and organic shapes that you see throughout the world now. But 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. And, and you still needed to have that, that uh, hand-to-mind 
and I still feel like it's an important quality for architects or anybody in design um, yeah. to have an ability to, you know, at least, you know, you don't have to be the greatest artist, but you should at least have an idea. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look at some of uh, Calatrava's sketches, they're terrible. They're terrible, but he started a napkin sketch and he did it by hand. He does it by hand and, and boy, does he execute, right? I mean, his buildings are amazing. So um, there's still a lot of guys like that. And I still think that that's an important thing. So when you talk about bringing students, um, not so much today, but certainly in the, in the late 2000s, early teens, we were still, you know, bringing interns in and sitting them down and teaching them how to draw mm. and encouraging them to draw more. Um, it's funny. I gave a, I, I gave a, uh, just this year, I gave a master planning student a crit on her final, on her final, um, you know, portfolio. And the one thing I told her <coughs> to do is um, list all of the computer programs she knows how to work on. And she knew like 15, but she hadn't listed them. So here we've come full circle, right? And now the important things yeah. coming out of school are InDesign and you know, AutoCAD or Revit and, you know, Enscape and all the, all the Lumion, all the, all the graphic file so that you can build a complete portfolio. Um, Cause there are, there are good tools. Um, dinosaurs like me still uh, work by hand, but um, it's a helpful tool also. So it's just good. We have some dinosaurs around. Uh, <laughs> we want to <laughs> still smell the ink on the finger or know yeah. the, know what it's like. You still to have a callus on your, <laughs> well, Jeff, it's been great to have you on. Really, really appreciate you telling and sharing the stories. I'd like to leave you with one more question. Is there a project where you got to be involved uh, at the architect level, uh, maybe even f uh, a little distant from it, but where you walked into the experience sometime later at the at opening day or something like that that just made you say wow yeah quite a few actually um <clears throat> warner brothers Abu Dhabi certainly was one um just you know everything i did for disney i got a backdoor entrance before soft opening yeah you know we recently i i was the architect for, you know i was the the architect in charge of nintendo world for aecom who documented um the project for, for universal and that that project was you know when we started it we didn't have the technology for the advisors right in, okay and they were years behind schedule they were supposed to have this early so we could plan accordingly but if you look at that world that world has a facade and a roof that has multiple kinetic things popping up and on and how do you how do you build that you know they didn't we didn't know how to build that when we got the design directive. Sorry, I'm going long, but no. but I'll tell you, I, I got to work a lot on the detailing to figure that out, to figure out how to hold those structures, how to dynamically hold those, how to do it in an earthquake environment, how to do it in a hurricane environment. Yeah. Um, so lots of dynamic things happening on top of that. How do you waterproof a building that has all these things that move <laughs> around on it? Well, mm -hmm. I love that example because it really blurs the line between show set design, yeah. animatronics, landscape architecture, architects, yeah, yeah. architecture, so, set design. I mean, it's... When I did all that and then I got to walk into the opening day, it was like, wow. This oh, is uh, quite, how rich. quite, yeah, it was a pretty good experience. So Very, very cool. Well, Jeff Dameron, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys, Mel, Freddie. 
we we can't thank you enough. Look forward to many more awesome projects together. Well, Mel, at the end of the interview there, Jeff mentioned walking around Nintendo World just before it opened to the public. And what a exciting moment that must be for any master planner architect to to see how this project that starts as, as some pretty simple sketches and moves into those worlds. And I, I know you and the team have visited Nintendo World and kind of made that a, a little bit of a place of benchmark. Uh, what does that mean to you, especially with regard to connecting uh, your teams and clients with a real world expansion upon a master plan idea? Well, like like a lot of things that we actually had a hand in building uh, that as well, as you know, and um, I think for us, the the ability to step into space that previously only existed, uh, whether it was in a digital world, um, you know, like a video game or a Pixar movie like Cars Land or uh, something that only existed in two dimensions on screen, uh, you know, it really is powerful and obviously to be able to take uh, your, your family, your friends through that. Uh, it was definitely special, not only taking our creative team, uh, through that. Uh, but also, uh, last week, actually, we were able to take, a you know, a number of clients, uh, through and to really kind of think about how this gives you a taste, you know, with being the first, for example, augmented reality dark ride with Mario Kart, um, as we're looking to the future, really kind of being a, a little bit more of a tangible visceral taste of what that, that true interactive, uh, future looks like where you're really talking about extended reality and, stepping into the story and interacting yeah, with yeah. characters uh, seemingly in 3D that are, in fact, digital characters. We, we were excited to roll out some of our proprietary software, you know, yeah. like our Ozone right. uh, tech, you know, real-time rendering and that, what that means with AI and AR. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a, a wonderland of fun if you can get past the crowd. So you, <laughs> that's my yeah. only warning is you got to time it right. Cause you, you still have those boring disciplines of industrial engineering yeah. uh, and revenue management and, you know, all those kind of things that you can, you know, dream and create and do the best stuff in the world. But not only does it just take people to create that reality, but it also needs uh, the ability to sometimes to just uh, say no uh, to yeah, right. incremental crowds and, and revenue. And, and that's, uh, that's some of the challenges I think Universal is bouncing right now with uh, cost and revenue. And obviously it's a hit, uh, but uh, you know, that's how do you, how do you, turn away hordes of people with, uh, you know, sacks of cash wanting to drop it on your front yard, you know? So. Well, I, I, I think it's just a, a fascinating concept, right? The, the person who came up with Mario, you know, and starting out in that little digital world, eight bit world. And now it's such a, uh, a wonderful experience to walk through and touch and, and each, each new generation, as we continue to move forward, we're going to see more and more amazing developments far beyond what that original idea was well mel it's time for us to get off the water before the mosquito hordes come gathering around i think i just saw one what do you say we turn this boat around i'm with you skipper all right until next time thanks mel The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We want you to know that we do not take your listening for granted. We love that you listen to the show. We love that you share it with your friends. We really also like meeting you out in the real world. So if you ever see us, please do give us a high five or something. 
Would you mind helping us out too by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts? That really helps others find the show. We appreciate the uh, the good feelings. Well, we want to thank our special guest, Jeff Dameron. Connect with Jeff through Mel and the team at Storyland Studios or shake hands with him on LinkedIn. Get access to new shows, stories, and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at themedattraction and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry is the owner and publisher of Rivershore Press, maker of fine, absolutely beautiful books on theme parks and design. He's also the host of America's Disneylands, a podcast on the history of regional theme parks. Check out all the fun stories and history at americasdisneylands.com and find great books to read at rivershorepress.com. You know, Mel, Barry told me the other day that some animals in the jungle are happy, like the laughing hyena. And some animals in the jungle are sad, like the duck-eating crocodile. They have down in the mouth. But Barry told me there's one animal in the jungle that is as confused as it can be. The polar bear. Thanks for listening, folks. 